Thanks to the band. Now I'm going to invite uh, Duncan to come and join me uh, on stage. We'll, we'll try to stay a metre apart or so. And I just want to ask him a few questions uh, before I hand over to him to take us through these verses in Philippians. I think, I think we're okay, aren't we? That's we're safe. Fine, I think, yeah. <laughs> Lovely to have you along, and Ashley uh, as well. Um, I'm conscious that maybe not everybody knows who you are, and you know we, we, we hear the Lannan family mentioned a few times, but we maybe don't know who you are, etc. So I thought it'd be useful just to ask you one or two questions. You haven't been here for a few years. Where have you guys been? What have you been up to? And how did the pandemic affect you guys? Yeah, so it's uh, good to be back. My name's Duncan, married to Ashley with Elliot, who is six months old. Um, we've been away in Kenya for four years, teaching at a British international school there. Um, before that, we were um, married, at, we were married actually right before going to Kenya. So our married life so far has been in Kenya and as of August, been back in Belfast. But before that, I was a member at the Crescent, as was Ashley, and we were here for a number of years. So um, COVID didn't affect us as much as it affected you, Unfortunately, I mean, it was good for us, but you feel a bit guilty. You know, we've not gone through the wars, as it were. We've had a very mild COVID lockdown in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. So you said you're back uh, from August. So what, what's been occupying your time apart from a, a youngster? And it's lovely to see Elliot here tonight. So what, what else has filled you, your time? So we're both teachers, but Ash is not teaching at the moment, uh, focusing on looking after we Elliot, which is a full-time job. <laughs> And I've just had some teaching work at a um, school in Craig Avon, so subbing, teaching English, teaching GCSE English, um, and just getting stuck into the church as well. Super, super. And it's been lovely to have you again, back again with us. And and, uh, I know the Lord's got plans for you in in the months and years ahead, and we pray with you uh, through that. Um, But obviously you've got a task in hand this evening, which is to help us understand this uh, second part of chapter one of Philippians. And as you have prepared for this evening and and studied yourself, what has been the sort of the one thing that has really struck you as you've considered this book and this passage tonight? I have really enjoyed preparing. Any time you preach, it kind of forces you to do some Bible study. So maybe this is a good chance to just say very few of the ideas that I'm going to share tonight are my own. Um, their synthesis of lots of other people's ideas. But what's really struck me, I think, through studying chapter 1 of Philippians is the um, realness of the gospel lived out. The gospel is, it's real and it's true and it's powerful. And we see that in Philippians. And so really just a good reminder of, of what the Christian life can and should be. Super, yeah. super. Great, thank you. Over to you now. All right, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, um, So as we said Uh, We're looking at Philippians chapter 1 tonight, so if you have a Bible, you could open up to um, Philippians chapter 1. And last week, um, David Farrell introduced our series um, on discovering joy through an overview of the book of Philippians. So we're going to continue with that theme, discovering joy, um, and we're going to read from verses 12 to 30 of chapter 1. So I'm going to read this for us, starting at... Um, verse 12, all the way through to 30 of chapter 1. So this is Paul writing to the Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And we pray that the Lord will bless the reading of his word. So, to refresh our memories from last week, um, at the time of writing this letter to the Philippians, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's under house arrest, he's awaiting his trial before Caesar, And in Acts 25 to 28, we see the whole story of his uh, journey to Rome, beginning with his trial before Festus and King Agrippa. Um, The Jewish religious leaders, they're after Paul's life. They want him dead. And he escapes their clutches by appealing to Caesar. And so he's sent to Caesar. He has an adventure-filled journey on the way and then arrives at the city to stand trial. And Acts 28 records his arrival. It says, So we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. So we don't know how long Paul was in Rome before writing Philippians, but uh, in verse 12, he provides a short summary of his stay. And he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's interesting to note that um, in Acts, Paul takes courage um, from meeting with the believers. And in verse 12, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the encouragement, the taking courage is mutual. Um, Paul takes courage from the welcome of the church in Rome. And here the um, Romans, in turn, are encouraged by him. We have to remember that Paul had long been anticipating meeting the church in Rome. 
He was finally meeting the people for whom he had prayed for so long and to whom he'd written his letter to the Romans. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul talks about his eager desire to meet them. And in chapter 15, he actually asks the church in Rome to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And Paul's prayers are answered, although perhaps not in the way he anticipated. This is a great example of God's economy. God never wastes an opportunity, even if it blooms in the midst of disaster. In man's eyes, Paul's ministry was almost certainly at an end. He was in prison, he was awaiting trial, before Emperor Nero, of all people. Although I've read that he was slightly more sane at this point in his life. Um, But Paul, through Christ, he sees things differently. He, in fact, was the one who demanded the trial before Caesar. And in doing so, his strivings and exhortations to the Philippians to pray that he is delivered, um, those prayers are answered. So let's take courage from even this small example that God works his purposes in all circumstances and not without a sense of humor. I can imagine the Roman believers greeting Paul and saying, well, Paul, this is not really how we imagined you'd come. And Paul replying, but I have come. Praise God. You see, Paul knew what really mattered in his circumstances, which is my first point. He was sold out for Christ. He was sold out for the spreading of the gospel. And so his personal freedom came second to serving Christ and to building up his church. And so with this perspective, Paul has the freedom to thank God for his chains. It seems that through Paul's bold witness, not only are the entire imperial guard and Caesar's household aware that he's in chains for Christ, but the local church are emboldened in their witness. And they're speaking the gospel in Rome without fear. Paul also in this section thanks God for these embittered preachers in Philippi whom Epaphroditus had most likely um, told him about. Um, He sees these preachers preaching from rivalry um, as a means actually through which the gospel can be advanced. And so for the same reason, he he rejoices. It seems that the Philippians, in fact, were worried, beset by jealous and competing ministers at home with news of their beloved apostle in chains in Rome. Perhaps the Philippians feared for the future of their church. And Paul reminds them to keep their affections in the right place. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's what's important. And he reminds the Philippians that though he may be in chains and the motives of some may be impure, the gospel is advancing. And through this, Christ is glorified. And Paul's able to do this because his focus is on Christ's glory. We read in uh, verse 20 that Paul says, With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. So Christ's glory is Paul's biggest aim. It's his highest priority. Death and life actually are kind of treated as equal alternatives with Paul because what he treasures most is Christ's honor, that he be magnified, whether by his life or his death. And so when Paul's weighing up his options, his question is, well, actually, which alternative will result in more glory for Christ? And in verses 25 to 26, we see Paul's answer. He says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. So through increasing the believer's joy in their faith, through strengthening the church, Paul sees that Christ will be more magnified, more glorified than in his death. So that's Paul's desire. Now this is no 
easy feat, and one that I can only say comes through daily, lived-out practice. Paul was at the end of his ministry here, perhaps near the end of his life, a life of faithful ministry. He'd faithfully served Christ for so many years. That's why in chapter 4 of Philippians, without stealing anyone's thunder, Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So this was something that Paul learned over many years. And so for us, let's start today. Christ invites us to consider his glory in each day of our lives, in the big and small things. It's a wonderfully freeing question to ask, how can Christ be glorified in my life today? It's a great way of changing our perspective, helping us to see things from his perspective. So what does it look like to live with Christ's glory as our focus? Well, Paul explains this uh, in verses 27 to 28. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So Paul exhorts the believers to live in a manner of life worthy of the gospel. Now this is it's kind of a confusing phrase. What does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean living in a way that somehow deserves the gospel. That would fly in the face of Paul's message. Uh, the message of salvation by grace through faith. So the gospel, we have to remember, is, is a free gift. So to live, it, to live in a manner of life worthy of the gospel doesn't mean deserving of the gospel. In fact, it means living in such a suitable and fitting way with all the benefits that the gospel has given you that through your life you show the worth of the gospel to others. Paul explains what this life looks like and he highlights four things. Paul wants to see or hear of the believers standing firm. That's the first thing that he highlights. The second is striving for the faith of the gospel. The third, that they are unafraid, that they're not frightened. And then mixed in all of this, that they are unified in unity. So to explain these, the first, Paul wants to see them standing firm. To use a sports metaphor, this is kind of the defense side of the Christian life. This is um, to be unyielding in the face of opposition to be unwavering in our doctrine, to be resolute in our commitment, to stand firm on the promises of God. Striving for the faith of the gospel, then that's offense. That's moving into attack. That's us as Christians moving into the world, heralding the gospel, moving into people's lives, and as his ambassadors, proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. This is the advance of the gospel that Paul is talking about in verse 12. And we're to do both these things unafraid of opposition. This is how we are to stand firm and to, and to strive unafraid. We're to be fearless in how we live our lives, both in defense and offense. And again, this unity has to characterize all of our actions. Paul says, you can see in red there, in one spirit, with one mind, side by side. Paul explains in chapter 2 of Philippians that this unity comes from considering others as more significant than ourselves. So this unity is putting others first. It's, it's Christian love, essentially. And so through standing firm, through striving for the gospel, unafraid and with unity, we can show ourselves and others how valuable and precious the gospel is. The gospel overcomes the fear of prison. It overcomes the fear of loss, even the fear of death. 
And the gospel makes us fearless in our standing and in our striving. It convinces us of God's provision for us. It severs the root of selfishness and allows us to serve the interests of others rather than our own needs. If we live this way, then our lives actually become a sign to all those around us, both to our opponents, unbelievers, and to the church. Verse 28 says, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So, how is our life, in a ma- how is our living in a manner worthy of the gospel a sign to our opponents of their destruction? Well, in how we live our lives, we are to be so different from our opponents. And by opponents, Paul means those whose God is their belly those whose greatest desire and reward in life are their appetites. We're to be so different from them that that their God is shown to be a false God. And in our stuff-saturated society today, this is how too many who do not know Christ live. But when they see that we have joy in the midst of suffering, when they see that we are content with plenty or with little, that we are fearless in our convictions, then their God The God of this world is shown to be a weak God, and they realize they're in trouble. Secondly, this life worthy of the gospel is a sign of our salvation. This life is so real that it's a demonstration of the truth of the gospel. And Paul's imprisonment is is a perfect example of this, um, how his life is actually a sign of the truth of the gospel. Paul made the believers in Rome confident in the Lord and bold to speak because they saw his unwavering trust his peace, his joy in Christ, while he was awaiting trial. And they thought, wow, the gospel must be true because they saw the power of Christ in Paul as he faced these trials. Paul's life was a sign of their salvation. And if Paul was fearless and loving in prison, they could be bold to speak. The sign of the truth of the gospel was strong. This manner of life is actually God's plan for us. If you look at verse 29, it says, For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but should also suffer for his sake. So actually, we've got two gifts from God in verse 29. God God grants it, so he's giving the gift, um, and he grants us belief, and he grants us suffering. Belief and suffering. So together, Paul is telling us that God actually gives us faith-filled suffering in the face of opposition. This is the sign. This is what causes our opponents to recognize that they are in trouble and believers that they are saved. By faith through suffering, you see that your life and faith are real and you are on your way to salvation and your opponents are false and they are on their way to destruction. Our suffering is not an accident. It's granted by God. So take heart. God has given each of us the faith and the suffering to show that our faith is real and to bring us safely to heaven. And so just to bring those points together, thinking about what really matters um, in this passage. Like Paul, we can rejoice in our circumstances, knowing that what really matters is Christ's glory. We must daily remind ourselves of the wonderful truth of the gospel so that we can live in a manner of life worthy of the gospel that shows the gospel to be true through standing firm, through striving for the gospel, unafraid and with unity, we can show ourselves and others how valuable and precious the gospel is.
as we live our lives focused on what really matters, we become a sign to all those around us, a living, walking testimony to the power of the gospel and a warning to those who are perishing and encouragement to those who believe. And so we thank God both for the faith to believe and the suffering he gives, which teaches us, which flings us in our weakness upon the strength of a mighty God. And I pray that as we learn to trust him more and more in each season of our lives, we'll grow in confidence and assurance of our faith so that we can say with Paul, to me, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that Paul shows us here in Philippians what really matters, that he had his eyes fixed on you, that his priority was your glory. And we thank you for the encouragement we can take from his life. We thank you for the realness of his life and for the truth that it speaks, that we can look at his life and the lives of men and women in history who have served you and see that the gospel, gospel is real and the gospel as power. And so we pray that in our lives we trust you, we'd seek your glory in the small and the big things, so that others may see us and see the truth of the gospel and be warned of their destruction or encouraged in their salvation. We thank you for your word and its truth, and we pray just uh, your blessing in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.